This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lachlan Summers. I'm really excited today to welcome Professor Alan Klima to the show. Dr. Klima is a professor of anthropology at UC Davis. He is the author of The Funeral Casino, which came out through Princeton University Press in 2002. He is the director, cinematographer, and writer of the film Ghosts and Numbers, which came out in 2010. And he has written several ethnographic articles and lots more public-facing material about meditation and about writing. But Professor Klima has joined me today to talk about his latest book, Ethnography Number 9, which came out in 2019 from Duke University Press. Last year, Ethnography Number 9 was a co-winner of the Gregory Bateson Book Prize from the Society for Cultural Anthropology. Instead of embarrassing myself by attempting to summarize the book, I'm instead going to read out one of the only moments in this book where Dr. Klima nails his objects of analysis down. So it is, one, the description of a locale in Northern Thailand in several dimensions of memory and observation, including the context of global situations, but by no means limited to, or even mainly that. Two, real ghost stories. Three, a terrible economic crash. Four, money schemes of some variety. Five, lottery. Six, ghosts in global film, their distantly close hands. Seven, the next world, which can be divided into two subcategories. First, the realm of the afterlife and the beings beyond our dream world's thin barrier. And second, the ideas of spiritual animation that seize and are seized by those minds turned upon and enraptured by our dream world's orchestra of numbers in furious exchange and giving birth to an emergent future, those metaphors of spirit, which they use to call back down to earth the abstract beyond, or else to imagine indefinitely and in delusion that there will be no return. Eight, trees, some with spirits, and nine, a mirror, one in which you can see what you really are, but not the kind you can hold in your hands. Dr. Klima, thanks for joining me today. Sure, great. So this, as I said, is a really hard book for me to write interview questions for. And so I think to begin with, I'm interested in knowing how this book project developed. It's really striking in that it's a super complex book, but it's also really readable. And I've given it to people who are not part of anthropology, who were able to read and enjoy the, the book, not so much the, the first part with all the theory, but, but the latter part, the story that they, they really kind of got something from it. How did you get started on this project and how did it develop? Uh, well, I guess it comes out of uh, years, I don't know how many years, maybe 20 years of being um, on and off living in a certain part of Thailand and being around spirit mediums and uh, watching the history from then unfold and then also kind of knowing the family histories of many people, uh, many people there. Uh, and so out of that, out of that background uh, of knowledge and um, following the financial crash in 97 and then also kind of noticing the um, proliferation right around that time of uh, international uh, like J-horror and K-horror and uh, 
uh, and uh, a certain Thai movie, very traditional story, uh, horror story, getting international attention, just all these things uh, came together and I wanted to write about that. But obviously they're so very different. And then I'm also writing from, in some ways, uh, this is actually kind of based off of an email exchange I had with you. Uh, I am kind of writing from outside history in, uh, you know, try, trying to speak to uh, others that might not be necessarily seeing the world the way that I do, but trying to enter into a conversation with them and, and things like that. And then on a more practical level, uh, I guess the, the part that the people liked <laughs> that, you, that you said that that part simply came out of uh, practicing Julia Cameron's daily, right, daily pages, which is an exercise of writing two or three pages every morning before you get started with your writing. Or, or maybe that's all that you can manage. And you just, and I just uh, got into, you know, a flow with that first. I might write about just uh, people walking around in the parking lot or whatever. Uh, outside of Starbucks or something like that. But then eventually, suddenly this voice came in, which was a voice that, I, that I'd had before. It was a voice in, from the film Ghosts and Numbers. Uh, but she came in and started uh, telling her story. And then I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. And so, um, that, so it just continued from there, going, going with her story. And then uh, a lot of the theory parts were layered back in and I should also say this took place over a long period of time, uh, the different facets of the book. So there was no ontological anthropology or anything like that when I started. At least I wasn't aware of it. And I, I certainly didn't feel like what I was writing, that anthropology was going to be receptive to it. But I was just like, okay, what the hell? You know, because I, I, I had tenure and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, screw it. Now, you know, I'll just, I'll, just go, I'll just go ahead with this. But by the time I finished it, anthropology was already, you know, thinking about these things in its own way. So there's already a receptive audience. And so what felt like a real sort of transgression or uh, that, that sounds more... Uh, in progressive thinking, transgressive sounds good. So I, I'm not necessarily <laughs> being transgressive in a good way, but just maybe uh, a little bit. With uh, I, I wrote it with a quite a bit of a lack of caution, um, which also speaks to that sort of semi-automatic writing process that I was getting into. Mm -hmm. uh, but by the time it came to publish, it wasn't as uh, problematic as, or maybe it still is, but. It doesn't feel that way. <laughs> Maybe with uh, COVID nineteen, I only get like certain kinds of people, certain kinds of exposures to reactions. So, uh, but, but it doesn't. But, but yeah, the combination of that, those uh, that exposure, and also just the way the field has developed in the time, it's much more receptive to what I was trying to do. I think. Okay, it's fine. I have so many questions about what you've just said, uh, and some of which I've already written. Some of which I, I might kind of come up with on the fly but I want to kind of I, I was trying to work out where an opening was into the book to start talking about uh, to start to kind of discuss the material you've got here and I feel like it might be the dyad of debt and haunting which is something you've written about and worked on a, a bit uh, and the way it seems to be kind of a, addressing the question of the the tendency in the social sciences to think of debt and haunting as, as some kind of 
they're somehow comparable in a way. And that to me seems to be one of the opening points uh, into the rest of the book. Can you tell us about like ghosts and numbers, deaths and deaths and hauntings? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's that's pretty general of a question. So let me get a question back to you. Like, where, what is it about that question that um, seems to really matter for you? Uh, which it could include some speculation about what these terms mean to you. Well, I, as I read it, as I read this book. You were talking about the maybe talking back to a tendency to see numbers as being an abstraction of something material, but throughout your book, numbers are often a materialization of something that is immaterial. Um, and so the the kind of standard logic that that social sciences employ when thinking about numbers didn't seem really to apply. And I felt like that was somehow parallel to some of the work that you're doing and thinking about about haunting and about ghosts and so on. That they're not markers or outcomes of secular processes or materialist histories but kind of going back the opposite direction yeah so that that sounds like a a good characterization of you know what the approach was uh so what question do you have about that um i was hoping that you'd be able to uh, talk about this this tension or the, the, the your project with these with ghosts and with numbers as a as a means of getting into the material of the book and then go from there to, to look at the work that you do. Like, why is it why is it a question that you've been asking for, for so long? Yeah, well, I think uh, about the the ghosts part of it. It's you know a fairly easy thing to see that, uh, and and you also you know characterize it that in the writing about ghosts and the social sciences, uh, for the most part, um, you know, ghosts ghosts are afforded a kind of reality, but it's usually as an expression of things that social scientists are already interested in and already believe in. In fact, things that they need to believe more in, like social structure and things that they actually have doubts about. <laughs> uh, you know, ghosts come in as like the material uh, instantiation of that. That's what's happening in Avery Gordon, which is so cool. You know, uh, you have doubts about these social science things and then ghosts somehow become the material evidence of that. It's a, it's a weird inversion, but I'm obviously not working on on that inversion and i'm also uh sort of like we could call it keynesian in terms of economics but i i I feel like the abstraction of numbers you know does really matter and it's not simply uh material processes although we could we could when we want to care about numbers we can look at how they cause material devastation or prosperity or whatever, uh, but uh, I mean, it start it starts with a Keynesian sort of appreciation that these abstract entities are really real. That 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 in a certain sense. Now that's still well within normal social science. But I I actually have questions about whether it's possible to also think uh, as many, as many people do that the numbers are expressive of how numbers play out, chance plays out, are also expressive of uh, deeper unseen uh, forces as well. And so that that's very present in the field sites that I uh, had, well, I call them field sites, but the places that I was living in among the people that, that I was talking to. Um, and so at the bare minimum, at least at the start of the book, at the bare minimum, I, I, I can say, uh, 
that, uh, and, and this is not uh, an unapproachable thought, it's an approachable thought. I can say that definitely among the people that are really kind of keyed into numbers and looking for uh, and seeing them as manifestations of something, uh, something unseen, not, not material, something immaterial, let's say, uh, they have a marked immunity to fear uh, at the global forces of change that are around them and the, you know, the monetary changes and the financialization of things, uh, which are real things and are issues that are brought up in the, in the book as well. Uh, when I say real meaning, uh, whenever I say real, really most of the time, I mean uh, something to care about. So mm-hmm. if you care about something that it's real for you, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the material realities are, are something to care about. And it's uh, something that the book cares about as well. Uh, but I think uh, at least at, at the start, I was thinking about about debt as a kind of horror story inside of social science and sort of no- normal social science. And one that I get scared about, too, in like studying neoliberalism and the financialization of the globe and looking at financial clashes. I'm like, wow, this is really scary. And then, and, and, you know, and it was when, when people first started thinking about this, or I use Adam Smith as the origin point there, well, Smith and Marx, but, you know, mostly Smith, they were also saying, this is really scary, you know, and so they were, they were really scared of the abstraction of it all. But I noticed that the people that I was talking to, they weren't scared, they weren't afraid. Uh, they saw other kinds of significances in there, uh, and, and other kinds of expressions. And uh, that's, that's an approachable thought that we could at the very least say, uh, that all this typical way of thinking about social science develops a lot of fear and uh, of this abstract financialization. And then mm-hmm. since I was saying what what's real is what you care about, if you're afraid, you know, you care <laughs> about that thing mm-hmm. that you're afraid of. And so the fear makes it real in a certain way. But that's not a reality that I, that I just want to leave unproblematic because everyone can accept that from market traders to Marxists can accept that that's, you know, that fear is, is real. And so I, you, using the phrase unapproachable thought, and I've never heard that phrase before. And I'm thinking about, you're, you're talking about the approachable thoughts to unseen forces and so on, and how you can think about them as an anthropologist. And anthropology has been thinking about this, uh, as you were mentioning, uh, for you know a decade and a bit now uh, of trying to include things that are not typically included uh, in an anthropological narrative. And you're kind of challenging this not by questioning those efforts or the admissibility of those entities, but this focus on admissibility itself. Um, and since I've read this book for the first time, I've been seeing how regularly anthropologists say, I intend to take seriously the presence of X. And this is your entry point into the problem of, of admission. Uh, could you talk about admissibility and, and, and seriousness? Why was this a challenge? Why was this the thing that you were going to engage? Yeah, well, I think I think maybe it's also uh, included. In, well, our starting place towards this could be included in in something that you said. Preface the question, uh, kind of saying, as an anthropologist, you this or that. But uh, these these kind of deeper matters, I, I as an anthropologist, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and, and that's one of the, and, and that's, I mean, I am on a certain level, I could 
definitely uh, trade in that currency. But I've noticed in you know a lot of other uh, things when I press people, uh, they often want to limit themselves down to a few axioms about you know what is a person, uh, what what. Uh, what is currently constituted as real and it's just starting to have a doubts or or hopes or aspirations or speculations about the horizon of that. And so what a, I can't remember the exact your question now, but so maybe you can report you maybe you can repeat it. Uh, but uh, one of the main things I was trying to do is is sort of see if I could expose a little bit about the the limitations of that. And so, one of the main limitations. Now, the question's coming back to me. Uh, one of the main li- one of the main limitations is uh, kind of contained in this idea of inclusion uh, that uh, that there's a certain form, a certain way of writing, a certain register of reality that we all share, uh, and uh, that uh, we need to open that up and things like that. So it's it's starting from a position of limitation, of being a limited person constructed by the various thoughts and philosophies that they that they have and that's uh you know i i i would maybe it's being arrogant to say this but i don't think that i'm writing from that position or approaching life from that position from the fundamental assumption that i'm limited uh and uh and i'm certainly not uh, limited to like anthropological discourse and so in a way i'm kind of looking at how people are limiting themselves in these discussions and just trying to, you know, displace that, displace those assumptions. At the same time, all those assumptions and their the ontological assumptions and the epistemological assumptions and everything, that they all contribute to the ability to say something coherent and meaningful about things that people care about. So I'm not, I'm not like throwing that out or it's just showing that that uh, now we have a new way to do it this way or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just try to sh- see if there's through contrast, juxtapositions, awareness of language, different things like that to just make it seem a little more like what it is, which is a, a, a limited view. You know, becoming aware of those limitations and trying to write, you don't think that fiction is going to resolve these questions, right? That, the, the questions that you have about how anthropology depicts the world uh, are not going to be not going to be resolved by fiction. Why is that? Uh, because that leaves uh, that leaves the the standard referential uh, form of the sentence or way of language that leaves it intact. Uh, and so, if you uh, if you make a special place for literature, well, literature can explore these things, or people do that with visual anthropology. Visual anthropology can explore these things, or poetry can, or art, or performance. They can explore these things, but writing can't. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Then, or, or, or literature can, but social science can't, or something. Uh, then you're still, you're basically reinforcing certain kinds of assumptions about, about social science, what it is, and, and what modes of truth are possible in it. Uh, and so uh, creating a special place for literature to explore these things, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but for, uh, for us who are, re- who are writing in some way, in some kind of, uh, with some kind of referential reference, uh, 
you know, that's that's kind of like a, a kind of cop out or, or something like that. So it's an easy, easy way out. Or you could think of it as like a pressure release valve. So you could take the right. pressure off and just go <laughs> and let it let it go. Let literature take that trouble. Right. Have a fiction chapter and then get back into to the real stuff in the next chapter or something. Or, yeah. Or that. But I meant more like in a sort of disciplinary sense. But that's a good a good ah. question too. But I meant more in a disciplinary sense that say, oh, fiction can approach right. those things or film can approach them. And that creates a kind of pressure valve so so that you don't have to deal with it. Uh-huh. You don't have to deal with it now because there's other things that can deal with that. And you, the work is like is in this kind of ambiguous space. Uh, like there are certain literary things that are happening here and you are really focused on the writing itself, but not to the extent that it becomes a, a fictional account. I was, as I was reading it, I was thinking a lot about like history, like capital H history and how the work is talking about, you know, material history. Particularly, I was thinking about those works that, that examine the, the limits of secular histories. So Marisol de la Cadena's work in Earth Beings, using the, the archive as a, as a boundary object the, to kind of trace what it can't include. Or Sajia Hartman's work identifying the gaps in the archive and, writing, and the writing that might fill them. And to some extent, these authors are talking from within history to see what it excludes and the conditions of those exclusions. But what intrigues me about ethnography number nine is that it isn't really written in these terms of inclusion or exclusion. And it isn't focusing on broadening the remit of history or highlighting what it overlooks. It's almost to me, and I was saying this uh, earlier, that it feels like it's speaking from outside of history back in. There's, there's not a lot of historical markers through the book. And, and those that are there are often like coy, like describing what year it is by noting the size and shape of, of someone's phone rather than and giving a date. Like, how are you working with and against history here? Well, there is history too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in Chaco Barney. But uh, I, 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 as far as history one goes, uh, right. I'm outside of history in the sense that my perception of the world isn't what would normally or conventionally be called historical, including the, um, including the perception of my life uh, or, or who or what I am. But that extends to, you know, everything that's going on in the world, et cetera. It's that, uh, that's, not a, that's not real to me. It's, it's just stories and beliefs based on certain kinds of axioms. So the idea that, you know, a person in a certain place is a cultural construction of their environment and the things that they've been conditioned or something like that. That's a very narrow and limited version of what, uh, what we are. Uh, and uh, when, the, when the thought of that kind of history, time, uh, we could say sort of secular materialist events uh, or events that register as real in a secular materialist frame and, uh, and linear times, or other forms of, of time reckoning, if those are thoughts, and when they're not present, they're not real. And they can be not present because you don't care about them, which I could say I don't care about them so, so much, uh, not completely, not, they're not, they, don't ha- they don't have 100% of my devotion, and they're not real when they're simply not present or when you turn away from them to uh, something that's you know, timeless. And there's a little bit of that in the book as well. Uh, try, try, I, you know, I tried to make it approachable, but uh, the main character from the position in which he's writing is not a girl, is not Thai. Uh, and she reveals that 
at, at certain points in the book, that she's something much bigger than all that. Mm. But in the story that she tells at the time, she, she was limited. Although, if you look at her story, that, that limitation was quite problematic and permeable, more than, it, more than most of us experience it to be. It was, it was kind of ruptured and unstable. Uh, and ultimately, you know, by the time she's narrating the book, she's not really actually speaking from that subject position. So in our, in our sort of normal way of thinking about history, including, including also, you know, Foucault or, or, or post-structuralism and things like that, when people are uh, speaking from a, a subject position, um, that's been kind of determined by the socio-historical grid. And that's what they are. And when they're speaking from that position, which is all the time, mm-hmm. that's all that they could ever be doing. They could never be outside. But, uh-huh. th- and this is the real sort of transgressive thought, and I don't say it in the book. I try to let you get a little bit destabilized or whatever. But, uh, but that, uh, that uh, every one of us, or at least, or at least the, the narrator, says something. I mean, I didn't read it back recently, but says things to the effect to, to encourage you to, to not limit yourself the perception of yourself in, in, in that way. So, so that's, that's, that was maybe a little bit rambling and maybe didn't touch on all the things that try to bring up what, what you wanted to, but uh, there's a real short answer and might be hard, <laughs> hard to swallow, uh, which is why I don't say it in the book, but it feels like it's outside of history because it is right. written from outside of history. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but and I'm happy to try to explain that, and I'm happy to try to help people to try to understand how that could be so, because I know that it violates everything that's fundamental about uh, the sort of social science that we, we have in anthropology. But uh, that, that's kind of the point. And one of the things, one of the cool outs about writing, especially for me, because I do identify all writing as somehow like fiction, uh, is that uh, you don't have to commit to it, to that thought. Mm-hmm. You could try to understand it. Well, first of all, you could just ultimately reject it because I said something. How could, I, how could somebody be writing from outside history? <laughs> just not possible, you know. But, but we could say when we're contemplating all these, you know, interesting new thoughts, why not just see what it's like? <laughs> but, you, but you have to see, you, you, ha- you have to look. And there's a few there's a few places in the book where the narrator encourages you to look. She can't place the reality of that in you, but she can get you to look at the possibility that that might be true that you're you're outside that you are outside of history as an approachable thought, as an initial approachable thought. It's not just about thought, though. It's about looking and and uh, contemplating. But as an approachable thought, we could at least say that. If you're aware of yourself as being constructed, of being a historical construction, from where are you aware of that? <laughs> what is aware of that? If you can see, for instance, that at age five, I was so-and-so, I liked red, white, and blue uh, popsicles, this other age, then I was different. And just five years ago, I, wow, I was in a total different space. So you're seeing all these differences. Uh, this is just from the standpoint of your 
your personal historical story. If you could watch these changes happening from where are you, where are you watching these changes from? How are you seeing these changes? What is the screen on which these changes are appearing? Hmm. Which is also why the narrator gets into a language of screens. It's just, it's a, it's an approachable thought. So there must be something more. Right. Or this whole social science that's creating this view of historical construction and uh, historical cause and effect and all, the, all these other things. Where is it seeing this all from? How is it aware of it? What is the background against which that, all that stuff is st- huh. standing out? That's an approachable thought. You know, if someone's willing to kind of look at that, then they might start to see that uh, both the acceptable thought that when the consciousness of time or when the consciousness of secular material history is present in the mind, it seems real, but when it's not, it's not there. You know, when you have to get up and pee in the middle of the night, you know, where's history? Where's your socially <laughs> constructed subject position? It's not there. It's literally not there. <laughs> you know, uh, and there are plenty of moments in life that are, are like that. There's plenty of moments that aren't defined by the, these things. And to, to take it, those things aren't very interesting, maybe, because they're not full of content and drama and stuff for us. Um, so we have to cultivate an interest in those things. Well, anyway. <laughs> uh, I wish I was uh, agile enough mentally to ask a question about that. But like, I feel like the next question that I, that I wanted to ask is maybe tapping into it, but... Um, it's not. It's a weird question, so please stop me if it's not really making sense. But I'm, I'm in, like I, I want to talk about the narrator uh, and what is happening here and how you know perhaps how it connects to this historical a historical this kind of blurriness, like the the background against which history is projected as legible kind of thing. And so I want. I, I'm interested in the the connection between narration and story. So. As you, you've established, you're looking to move away from anthropology's kind of realist frame in which the author is like a narrator of or conduit to some distant real. And, and ethnography number nine does this by deferring its narration to someone else. Uh, so that's one component of what interests me. The second part is that story has become really prominent, a really prominent thing that anthropologists like to talk about. But often to me, story means like illustrative example or vignette or something like that. Ethnography number nine is one of the few ethnographies I can think of in which the the narrative is not just a collection of illustrations that are gathered into coherence by a theory. The the book tells one story throughout, and it's more that the theory is gathered by the story. And because of the way that narration is deferred to someone else throughout the book, it's as if the story is is telling itself. Um, I want to, like, I, I don't know how to ask a question about this, but I'm, can you... Does that mean anything? The the connection between narration and story, and the as being like the literary modes through which you can kind of engage these bigger questions you're thinking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I totally understand everything you're asking. Oh wow! Uh, so so one, uh, there's two two quick answers. Let me just see if I can actually accomplish a, a quick answer and see <laughs> where where that where that takes us. But one one of the quick answers is that the story did tell itself. Uh, that's my experience of it. Um, it just it just rolled out. Like I said, adopting a, an automatic writing type of practice, the story just um, did did tell itself. And then thinking about the story itself, the 
narrator does make a journey, uh, however wobbly or, or well told or not well told it is, uh, from kind of being somebody with a regular sort of orientation to the world. Of course, her orientation to the world, you know, right from the start, you know, gets troubled. Uh, and it's also in a different environment, a different time and place than you or I, for instance, uh, grew up in. But it's she She does make a journey all the way from the sort of, I don't know, let's call it for, this is just popping into my head now as we're talking. It wasn't like a conscious plan, but she makes a journey from being a, an ordinary person to being beyond person and being beyond time and history. And that's her journey. And by reading it, you might be able to participate in that journey. And then may also be able to contemplate the points where she starts talking in a kind of a philosophical language. Uh, I mean, of course, there's philosophical language throughout, but at, at some points she's pointing uh, in a way and trying to speak directly to the to the reader, you know, to 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 look at what's presently happening and see if you can't shift over to her her perspective. And this is speculate i would call that a speculative story because it's uh, it's like i'm placing a bet <laughs> down on the reader and uh maybe it will pay off maybe it'll pay off sometime in the future or maybe it'll pay off right away uh, i think both could be true to a you know a sympathetic reader that uh, it may also be true of an unsympathetic reader that uh she's betting on you she's betting that you will you will move in this direction uh, towards where, where she's speaking from. And so the story is, is, is highly motivated in, in that sense. And just because you don't wind up there doesn't mean that the bet was uh, no good because it, it's speculative and we don't, know, we don't know how it will turn out yet. And also the lack of result could just be my fault that I just didn't do a good job of uh, <laughs> conveying what she wanted to get across. Yeah, I tried... I could I won't say I tried my best, but I tried. <laughs> None of us ever try our best <laughs> when it comes to writing. <laughs> but I like that you use the phrase of placing a bet uh, on the reader um, because I was thinking about how the, the the inversion of story and theory, the you know, in the typical kind of anthropological way, and, and all this extra work that you that you're doing here, you're not the, the book is kind of making its case without using evidence or like a standard kind of evidentiary regime of truth. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what do you have an expectation for how an audience is to read this book? Uh, hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess definitely. I think, uh, well, I. This an expectation meaning a preference, I would say. Yeah, yeah. a preference yeah. for for it. Uh, what I expect has nothing to do with what what might actually happen. Uh, but right. I, but I, I would uh, think that it would be needed to be read at minimal by by someone. Or my preference would be for the reader to be um, willing to temporarily try something else out for size because they feel like there's something more or something different can happen. So 
without that without that interest, which could be an interest like, oh, I want to see what's a different way of writing, or I want to see, you know, I want to see those things that I was talking about uh, with where, where the narrator's real true motivation is uh, with about, without seeing outside uh, these limitations. Uh, or I want to see what's possible or whatever. Or even, but not as much, I want to see what varieties going on in anthropology now to compare it, mm-hmm. compare all the different kinds of things that are going on or something like that. Uh, you know, but, but it would, you know, definitely the preference would be for a reader that's willing to undergo a, a temporary experience, uh, which might not be temporary. I don't know if that was a good answer. That's a really good answer. So I think part, you partly answered like a, another question I wanted to ask um, just then, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But you write early on uh, uh, that, quote, a mere tropological spectral writing takes metaphors to complete thoughts about what exceeds its grasp. And so this is the stuff that we're talking about, about ghosts being either outcomes of secular history or markers of material processes or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, but I'm thinking about that alongside the kind of the skepticism toward the anthropological real uh, throughout the text. And I'm wondering how those two projects come together, because I don't think your commitment to avoid writing reductive materialist accounts of ghosts stems from trying to get ghosts right or being true to what ghosts are. So I guess I'm wondering, like, why do you care about the representation of ghosts? Uh, well, in that, well, we could, we could talk about representation in general and then representation of ghosts. But in, in far as, ah, okay. a, a, as far as ghosts go, that, that was more like a standard observation that could and you could have any number of hundreds or thousands of similar observations that if you decide to look at anthropology as literature so you know going back to the 80s or whatever that was but if you look at the at the anthropology and critical theory that uses ideas of ghosts and, and things like that you just notice that from a literary standpoint it's as metaphor uh, from a stylistic standpoint, as a metaphor, except that I would still leave, not that I understand Derrida, but I would still leave that question open for Derrida. Uh, I think I said something like that the force of secular material seems strong in him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, kind of referencing Star Wars there, that was supposed to be. But, but, uh, but, uh, but I, don't, I, I don't really know the answer to that question, but there is things inherent in his philosophy of language or anti-philosophy of language that uh, make it hard to pin him down, I would say. Mm-hmm. Even though I might not, I might be totally unaware of like places in the world where our interviews where Darius says, no, ghosts are not real or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. But it, it doesn't seem, I, I would leave an open space for him. Uh, sorry, could you say what the original question was? Oh, it's like, why do you care uh, about the representation of ghosts thinking of oh, yeah, ghosts yes, right. and the real? Right, so the so the ghost thing is diagnosable that way, but then you see that it really has to do with a certain kind of referential language mm-hmm. uh, where you have these social science concepts and you have these social science ready uh, types of reality and you, and you write in a way where you're saying, this is the way that it is. So a, a person is a discursive construction uh, created out of overlapping sets of discourses or something like that, whatever. So that's what's happening. And then now you know what a person is. Or, you know, the uh, 
whatever, any, any number of these concepts. I, I give an example from my own work, which I don't really fully explain it. But uh, right. actually, I literally wrote that sentence. I was like, well, the, right here is the part in the essay where I need to like kind of say what I'm doing. And what the point of this is is all that's like, but I don't know what the point of all this is. So I just I just took a, it was actually kind of a joke, a private inside joke with myself uh, that that my own sentences quoted in there is that is that I actually just took the form of sentences and just made my own one where thing is I forgot what it was, but it's one of those sentences where you say it's both this and the opposite, both limited and unlimited, both constructed and un or whatever. Uh, I forgot what it was. I forgot that. I wish I had that sentence out here. Right. But anyway, I literally was laughing as I wrote that sentence because I just needed to get this publication because I was going to get reviewed <laughs> and I had to get something in press. And I, so I had, needed to have like a, a statement, uh -huh. you know, there. So I said this thing about global. global. Yeah, it was like both right. global and local, blah, 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 something like that. And I just took that from so many articles that I've read. Right. Uh, and so I literally just performed the the thing that counts as truth right i made a sentence in the form that counts as uh -huh. truth and that's what i one of the that, that's kind of that's kind of an in into the way that the book is written is that uh that you can do that you can just write sentences in anthropology that are in the form of truth and then they're therefore true and it's just a reflect the whole book is a reflection right. on that so to your other question to the question about representation in general, that uh, we can be aware of, of different forms and try try new forms. I don't think there's anything original in Ethnography 9. Someone somewhere is doing everything, including even the parts where the spirit is talking to you from somewhere else, that that, that language and the form of those sentences, and it's referenced in the book, is actually taken from a Tibetan writer or speaker right. so it's just it, so so the form in which we're writing which we all take we, we've all heard about that we're all like oh yes yes <laughs> i guess i know of course <laughs> you know that's been pointed out long ago but then nobody's like uh you know really not nobody but there there hasn't been enough sufficient destabilizing of these uh sort of normal scientific social scientific ways of just of describing and talking about about truth. And so that's just, there's nothing wrong with those forms, but they're limited. And, right. and there's other, other possible modes of, of talking that don't have to adopt that referential language in quite that way. I'm, I'm really interested in this uh, and what you're saying here uh, about kind of the tendency to criticize or to critique things, but not necessarily kind of work out what would take the place of the critique of that type of referential writing. And that's what this book is, is trying to accomplish. So what I'm interested in is that you mentioned your surprise when I contacted you about interviewing you, because I said that I found this book impossible to write interview questions about. And you mentioned that uh, other graduate students were having trouble writing after having read this book. Uh, so I'm interested in, in this conversation because alongside a point that you made earlier on that this is, this is a book that you, know, you kind of have to have tenure to write. Because I was trying to imagine what an SSRC proposal might look like if this were the research. I, I couldn't imagine it. Um, but what, what might be your, your, your hope for writing in the discipline? Like, how could somebody who's, say, not a professor start building the, the writing discipline that you're interested in? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So first, speaking to, you know, that, that anecdotal thing that I had told you separately, uh, that a couple 
people had said they had trouble writing afterwards. I think it's maybe uh, a combination of my own form of writing the critique being too conventional, kind of like putting up the opposite view and like biting at it, you know? And so they, they, they see that. And then I think also it's their, their habit of, of perception as well, uh, which is what we see in anthropology a lot, a lot of times where there'll, there'll be this critique and then they'll say, no, now this is the new way that will go forward. Now we'll have multi-sided ethnography and it'll be like this and it'll be like that. And now this is what we'll do or, or something like that. So I'd be exposed to mm. those two things. My uh, could still having a, a, quite a bit of roots in a kind of a habitual kind of writing. I recognize that even one of the reviewers actually pointed that out to me and I, I just couldn't fix it. It was like too much of a, it, it was, would be too hard, but they did notice that my, that the book starts off with this critique Right, right, and uh, which is how and theory lead in critique, and then goes on from there, which is the standard form, something like that. So the combination right. of those two things, I think, my fault uh, or my limitation or inability as a writer, and uh, their own kind of habits of perception, kind of got made it seem as though the message is, don't write that way, write this way. Uh, you can't do those other things because then you're capitulating and. Well, I didn't do those kinds of critiques, but exactly. I didn't link. Uh, I, my critiques aren't saying, like, if you do anthropology this way, you're part of the capitalist order that's dominating the world <laughs> or something like that. But a lot of other critiques will then make that next you know, step. But still, I was making yeah. it. I, I, so I wasn't necessarily pointing out a new method or, you know, things not to do. Because I think that that really depends on what your subject is. So the subject of ethnography number nine is actually the thing that the narrator is trying to point to, like at the heart of the subject. Of the, it's not even number nine. It's about that. Uh, if it was about, you know, child abuse or something like that, you know, it would be different. And then there's certainly it, there, there could be interesting ways to research and write about uh, child abuse or something, but probably wouldn't be you know very similar or i don't know i don't know what it would be but there's, there's nothing wrong with uh you know studying a political movement and how it's being persecuted by the state and right you know talking about the real facts of that that you've discovered and what are people really thinking and what are they really saying or, you know and, and all that all that kind of thing and so it's not it's not true uh that you have to have tenure uh but I certainly wasn't willing to go this far without tenure, but but that doesn't mean everyone has to be as limited as me. And not that I'm recommending anyone just flaunt everything, but uh, but that but you see, even that sentence, it's, there's a, set, a kind of limitation, and that limitation does apply to me. Or I practice my life according to that limitation, uh, but you don't actually have to believe those things because they might, you know, not be true. In fact, if you do try to conform too much that is almost a guarantee since you brought up the question of you know a career or something academic career that's almost a formula for failure in this competitive environment to to only follow the trend and only follow the form means that you're joining a huge competitive pool of people who are doing the exact same things writing in the same way etc and some of those people are going to be totally suited to that 
and have topics that are totally suited to that. Also going back to the thing I said before, and they'll be okay. But, you, but if you do your own thing, you only have one person to compete against, or you, you just have to struggle with your text and then you don't really have competitors. Uh, and so it's not always the case. I just kind of harping a little bit on, on that one thing. It's not always the case that taking the safest road, what appears to the mind to be the safest road is actually the safest road, even in the terms of that one thought. But you, you didn't, your question wasn't really about all that stuff, even though you just brought it up briefly. So what was it about again? <laughs> Sorry. No, no, this is it. No, I was just. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. Like, there's no jobs, so we might as well just write uh, our dissertations in ridiculous ways. But I'm interested in, like, what, like, say, after a few years of, like, thinking about this book, what would you hope, uh, you know, what avenues in anthropology might have opened up? Like, what might the discipline kind of be like if this became within the range of categories of writing in anthropology? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, first chapter notwithstanding, I think. Uh, readability is, you know, quite possible along with like philosophical and theoretical things. I, I, I think, I don't think um, people who are theoretically savvy are not getting anything out of the parts that aren't theory-leading. I think that they, that they are. So that would be maybe one of the main things is, is that you can think, you know, deep thoughts without necessarily always having it in that that one particular language. But since we're in anthropology where there's always a mix of languages anyway, my mix might be more widespread. I might delve into many different kinds of sentences, different, many different kinds of writing uh, in different sections, but we're, we're always mixing those things. And so you'll, you, you still have the theoretical type writing uh, and type sentences that you can have in your work, but also these other kinds of, of sentences and, uh, I think uh, probably shamanism, colonialism, and the wild man kind of opened my eyes to that, uh, and maybe also Victor Turner's writing on on the white whale or something, or on on Moby Dick. Uh, uh -huh. That that that, and there's been plenty more examples in, in anthropology, but just really opened my mind to to just very simple things like uh, like in shamanism and colonialism and the wild man. New chapter page and a half next chapter 50 pages you know why not <laughs> you know uh, what, what's stopping us from doing that you know and then actually when you do have like a difficult bunch of thoughts to uh kind of bring together then you have to do things like that and, and break out of break out of molds and you might actually find it easier and you don't have to be a heroic you know innovator or something like that. I mean, I, I struggled with this text for a long time until my, my friend Joe Dumit just said, well, why don't you just, why don't you just keep it like this? Cause I was trying to integrate it and make it, you know, more organic and get the pieces to flow together and said, why don't you just leave it like it is? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's still some work to do, but, but I, I think people need reinforcement uh, to try their own things and to do their own things. And, uh, you know, always trying to fit your thoughts about which, you know, most graduate students have complicated thoughts and complicated knowledges and experiences and to try to marshal it and funnel it down into a certain kind of form is really difficult and counterproductive. And so if you could more, if people can feel more free to explode the text and, uh, you know, then you only have to deal with certain moments like grant proposal or 
or right. a book proposal. <laughs> like, what are your chapters? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, you know, and that's one thing being a published author it helped with because I, I was like, can you send the book proposal or whatever in your chapters? And I was like, what? <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't. Uh, I can't summarize these chapters. Uh, sorry, and, and, you know you have a certain idea of what a book is, and I can't. It, it's not that kind of a book. Uh, so, uh, right. so yeah. So that's that is. I, I think I am answering your question now. I feel confident about that. That that it's really my hope uh, for readers as right as writers and authors that they just get another example like I got, you know, way back when from from Michael mm-hmm. Tausig. That you know, you don't have to. You, you could write, you know, so many other different ways. I didn't only get enough from him. I mean, the, the truth is that I was reading a lot of uh, literature uh, during uh, during the time that I was in graduate school. And I, I always felt, I think this might have come from Said or something. I can't remember exactly. Uh, my professor, John Kelly, quoted this to me. But uh, somebody had said that social science is written as though 20th century literature never happened. <laughs> and I think it was Said who said that or something, but uh, not that he's that, you know, far out there. But anyway, that that that, that rings very true to me. Uh, I'm familiar with, with 20th century literature, which is so innovative and so many different things and uh, going that haven't been tapped into at all, or, you know, barely. And it's like it didn't happen. Uh, and, and, the form doesn't, you know, advance really. Uh, but I, I think one of the real interesting things about anthropologists and and all the things that are being written today is, is how much they're able to do inside these conventional forms. So much, able to right. do so much. Uh, but uh, kind of giving an example that you that that you can kind of go all over the place and and have it be meaningful, I guess, would be the the thing that I would want authors to take away and then and then hopefully they would feel like they were freed mm-hmm. uh, to return back to that or the origin point of your question that they were freed to do that mm-hmm. but uh, I definitely didn't want the opposite effect which is what seemed to have happened which is the, uh, in, a, in a couple of cases that I know where, where it felt constrained mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and limited in, in what they could do because they don't want to like Right in the, in these bad ways that I right. pointed out and stuff like that, and I did, I really didn't mean to do that. And I see and and like just to sum it up again, what I said, I see that as a twofold problem. One is a habit of perception, so that those things are just interpreted the way that people right. had been re- writing before. But it's also my own fault because in that set there are many things in the book that are quite conventional uh, in terms of form, and that's one of them is the the theoretical critique part. Mm-hmm. And so to get that effect, to, to feel that effect doesn't surprise me, actually, now that I think about it. First, I was surprised, <laughs> but now, now thinking about it, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so I'm interested. I'm glad that you brought up like 20th century literature. I was wondering, you know, who you were reading while you were working on this. And I couldn't really think of anything. I could only think of films. Like I was thinking of like Meshes of the Afternoon or Inland Empire, where narrators are kind of not just like untrustworthy narrators, but very, very slippery narrators that are kind of moving in and out of subject positions. Uh, so I was thinking only, I could only find like film uh, as like reference points. Uh, was there some kind of work you were drawing on that was helping you here? Uh, no, actually I wasn't re- I don't believe I was reading. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember now, but I don't believe I was reading 
at that time. And, and film was the bigger influence on me. So yeah, it would definitely include Meshes of the Afternoon. But uh, probably the main two influences are, are Kidlat Tahimik, uh, Perfume Nightmare, if you haven't seen that. Uh, that is, uh, that's my favorite film in the world. Uh, okay. and, uh, and then Chris Marker as well, which then would be, you know, go, oh, it must be, it, it, you know, if you know his films, uh, or San Soleil, uh, then you, a light bulb will go off. I'm sure the narrator came somehow out of, or San Soleil opened a space for that narrator to enter. Uh, mm. But those two films, I would say, are the, the major influences in the book. But when I was, uh, just to get back, though, uh, to the question of reading, since I don't have any memory, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but uh, when I was writing my dissertation and writing my, my first book, uh, that was very important and deliberate that I, you, you know how you have this feeling sometimes, I don't know, probably most people do, where you read a book and then you find yourself writing like in that style afterwards yeah. or something like that. So I was very intentionally, uh, back, back then I was developing myself as a writer consciously and on purpose. Mm. And you did ask about that, so we could get back to that. But, uh, and, and so I, I had certain authors that I would read to get a certain kind of effect or to undo a certain kind of mm. effect. Uh, and so I was intentionally imbibing them for the, uh, to have that effect on my, on my writing. Uh-huh. Well, this is, that's all the questions that I've really written down. Uh, so as a way of wrapping up, I, I guess I'm interested in what you're working on next or if you're working on something more. Yeah, well, it's going to sound like a kind of a letdown, <laughs> but uh, I, I've, I, I think this project maybe started from a, a not, not a good place, uh, but uh, I, I decided I wanted to write something more conventional uh, a little while back, and I just kind of took something that I that was bugging me and that I wanted to say something about, uh, and uh, seemed like it could work as a. I could even make a grand proposal for it, maybe, or something like that. That's that's all gone. That's all gone away, and it's not going to be that anymore. But uh, but 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 it's okay. basically looking at the mindfulness meditation uh, that's blossomed in the last ten years or so, really. And uh, because I do know the historical origins of that, and I know the historical story uh, of the. Um, the meditations in Southeast Asia that that's been based on and kind of kind of kind of know the uh-huh. lay of the landscape on that and then also have uh, a non-secular materialist view of meditation which is uh, kind of what's predominant in the mindfulness meditation movement I thought I would do a cultural studies type uh, um, analysis of 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 public things around that, but written from uh, a very different perspective. Uh, plus also having this uh, historical repertoire, which I just have by accident or by happenstance. Um, so the final the final shape of that is not, not clear. I'm working on that, but right now it kind of has a, a very uh, kind of traditional academic critique kind of uh, thing. Uh, but in, in in this book, I got to speak more uh, explicitly about secularism and and secular materialism, whereas uh-huh. I do that indirectly 
I feel I do it indirectly right. in, in Ethnography 9, or, or I build up to it, at least. Yeah. But now I'm going to take that on a little bit um, inside a, a conversation that would, most for the most part, only be relevant to people who are interested in meditation. So that, it doesn't sound very exciting to me either, which is maybe one of the, one of the problems with it. But uh, no. <laughs> I, I've got to connect with the, when As I was writing... As I was writing my dissertation, is that as I'm writing now, I keep a separate file of like ranting. So when I was writing my dissertation, I was writing rants in response to all the criticisms that were in my head, like people, which would usually be literal, like people's voices. Even people I didn't care about, they would be like, oh, yeah, he said this. And I would just write my responses because they like got me through the writing dissertation because I couldn't have that stuff in the thing. And then now my my separate document is now why am I doing this? <laughs> What's the point? And so there's pages and pages of me trying to figure out what the point of what I'm doing is uh, because I, because I don't know. And that seems to be the, the problem. So that's, that's a, uh, I think that that could be an encouraging thing to hear for a writer that, that, that you can be in this state. Uh, and well, we'll see. We'll see if I, if I, anything actually comes out, but if it does turn out that something comes out of this, writing it'll show that you can be totally lost which i've never been you know with the other books or with the film or things like that but be totally lost as to you know what what am i really trying to accomplish here and and have it still come out okay and also that that feeling of being lost is um is common for all writers i don't think that a a dissertation writer is quite that lost though they still have a sense of what they're interested in and why they got into it or if they, if they're if they've lost track of that all they have to do is really kind of recall you know how they got into yeah. their research and 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 there's there's sources of motivation there uh-huh. a sense of purpose is there they're not lost to the way, in the way that I'm lost now plenty of <laughs> dissertation writers have been a little bit lost and turned out okay plenty if if not most right? well I'm really re- interested in reading this book but I'm particularly interested in maybe reading a book of these rantings that you've been typing I think that would be funny <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate how generous you've been with your time, uh, and I'm really looking forward to ongoing conversations around this fantastic book. Yeah, uh, yeah. If there's anything that you want to continue or follow up on, or or do another thing, that would be great. <laughs>